Let me say thanks to everybody again for showing up. This is another great opportunity we have. We're going to get in the Word of God. In just a second, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to go ahead and get ready in 2 Corinthians and chapter number 8. If uh, you've been with us for this study, you know the theme of the entire book of 2 Corinthians is all about ministry, the minister. Uh, what a practical book for us, seriously, and what a, what a great... I mean, the Lord has even worked out the timing of us studying this book, I believe, over this last, I don't know how many months it's been, that we've systematically been going through. It's just been very, very timely and very effective and a really great study for all of us. By the time we get to chapter number eight, we'll be finishing chapter number eight today. By the time we get to chapter number eight, we realize that each chapter has a theme and chapter eight actually and chapter nine have the theme of giving. And so in weeks past, we've spent some time talking about Giving and today, yay, we get to talk about my favorite subject in the whole world, and that's missions. And uh, specifically, we're going to talk about giving to missionaries. Um, but let me just let me just tell you, today's message we're we're only going to talk about giving to missionaries just a very little, and just at the very end. Okay, so really, the focus of this section of scripture that we're going to see is not so much about the giving, and it's more about the missionaries. I mean, let me just say, we as, a fir as the First Baptist Church family, we have proven that we know how to give to missions and how to give to missionaries, amen? And uh, we just came off of the Reach Missions Conference, and so many people have given so very generously to the Albanian Bible Project I don't want to yet reveal the total, sorry, because a lot of people weren't here on Tuesday on Giving Day, and if by chance you're here and you intend to give, I don't want to discourage you by talking about the generosity of others. <laughs> Each of you should give as you're led by the Lord, however that might be, but we will, we'll, we'll reveal it next week, how about that? Let me just say this. Many people have been very generous, and, and I'm always thrilled and overwhelmed to be able to lead and shepherd a group of people that are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and most specifically concerning getting the Word of God around the world. It's just such a, it's just such a wonderful thing. I'd hate to think that I was trying to lead a group of stiff-necked people that don't care about stuff like that. That would, that would, be, that would be hard. Um, but giving to missionaries, uh, we actually saw this a couple weeks ago, it's not really all that different than the simple Bible principle of paying a worker to get a job done. The idea is you're investing in somebody, you're paying somebody something, and it says in Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 1, we actually saw this a couple weeks ago, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. And when we talked about equality, we went to this verse. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The idea is this. The master, or we could say employer even in that context, gives a just and a fair wage to a worker, not just out of benevolence, but because the worker works. And the worker works in such a manner that the master or the employer benefits from the work that is done. That's very much like missions. We support missions and missionaries, and they go do work that we couldn't possibly do, and we actually benefit from, in eternal rewards, the work that they do. So we want to give to them that which is just 
and that which is equal. Now the story, historically, what's going on in 2 Corinthians is that Paul is referring to giving in a lot of different contexts. Let me just say first and foremost, Paul is a giver. Paul has given much to the Corinthian church. He's given of his time and his service. He's given them the gospel. He's given them continued care by continuing to send other brothers to go and to check up on their spiritual welfare, and we'll see some of that in this section today. And so now the Corinthians are being asked to give of their financial resources to send to poor saints that are in Jerusalem. Paul's asking the Corinthian church to help give to others who are in need. And so in this final section here, in chapter number 8, what we see is Paul is describing the brothers that are going to take this money and go deliver it to Jerusalem. And I get it. Whenever we talk about the issue of giving, sometimes, sometimes it's hard to always be asked to give and to give and to give. You might feel from time to time as though there's no end to all the good causes. And I mean, how can you really decide which one is the most worthy of your investment? And maybe there's a situation where there's just so many people that at least call themselves missionaries and they're all looking for some sort of financial support. I mean, which ones among them should we be looking to approve? And I think Paul addresses that by just giving the simple description of these brothers that are going to be the faithful messengers in this passage of Scripture. And so I've given the title today's message, The Biblical View of Missionaries. And I believe that once you have this proper biblical view about what God says about the characteristics of a real biblical missionary, I think it makes your choice a whole lot easier. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to practically look at what the Holy Spirit is giving us, seven specific personal characteristics of these servants, which outline for us what we ought to be looking for in the life of a missionary. It's actually a fairly simple message today. And you can glance at your outline and your notes there, and there's seven points not to panic. It's not that hard. We'll go through it efficiently um, but it is very practical, and it is very applicable to, to our lives here today. So uh, we're going to jump in at verse 16. We, that's where we left off, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Follow along, 2 Corinthians 8, 16. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother, whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us, proving, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting 
on your behalf. All right, let's go to Lord in prayer. We'll jump into our outline and see what God has to say. Heavenly Father, as we come before you in this section of Scripture, Lord, it is really a beautiful thing. As your Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write down this description of these three men who are representing the churches and carrying out a mission. And uh, through that, Lord, we understand that there's some things that we can understand. So give us this clearer understanding of missions and missionaries, and as a result, the target of places where we can joyfully then give to be a part of the ministry that extends beyond uh, our physical realm right here where we live. So we thank you, and we, and we just ask that you be our teacher today through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's a lot of things we're going to see about a biblical missionary, and the first thing that we're going to see that a biblical missionary needs to be, number one, is obedient. That should be kind of a no-brainer, right? First and foremost, he needs to be obedient. So the first couple of verses, thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care in the heart of Titus for you, for indeed he accepted the exhortation. He accepted the exhortation. Now, very simply, the word exhortation, uh, is, it's a request. Um, to exhort someone is to plead with them, right? Uh, the same word that's used here, exhort, uh, is used back in verse number six of this chapter where it says, insomuch that we desired Titus. In other words, we had a request for Titus. We had an exhortation for Titus. And he accepted that exhortation. He, he was willing to go with our request in what we had for him. So when Titus was asked to go and do something new, what do we know about Titus? Well, he, he said, okay, I'll do it. He accepted the exhortation. He agreed. He actually didn't just say, well, that's a good idea. He actually went and did it. He actually obeyed what was asked of him. And again, we're not breaking a whole lot of new ground here today, but, but let me just say, isn't that really all that matters? Isn't that really what the Lord expects of any of us, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus tells this story back in Matthew 21. Some of you might be familiar with it. We're going to start in verse number 28. And Jesus teaching with this story. He says, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, the first. Jesus say unto them, verily I say unto you that the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. In other words, which of these two sons of this certain man in this story was actually obedient to his father's request, to his father's will. What was the first one? It didn't matter that he started off saying, I'm not doing it. At the end of the day, he did it. And the fact that he actually did it, well, the father gave an exhortation, go into my field and work, and the first son accepted the exhortation. How do we know that? Because he actually did the will of his father. Well, that's who Titus is. That's what Titus did. He was submissive to his leadership. He worked together in a, in a team, and his leadership team asked him to go do something, and he completed the task that he was asked to go do. And 
And so when Paul said, look, I need you to go and I need you to check on the Corinthians and I need you to come back and I need you to report to me how they're doing and, and ultimately he's going to be tasked with this uh, sending of this offering to Jerusalem and, and all these kind of things, we see that Titus is a missionary. He's working with a missionary team. He was sent on certain tasks and he went and did those things. He was sent out by the authority that was set over him. We saw that in the last chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us, Paul says, by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. Titus was dispatched to go to Corinth and to check on them. He found them doing well. He was greatly encouraged by the Corinthians. He comes back to Paul and reports, man, they're, they're doing great, and they encourage me. And that news that was sent to be found and then returned back to Paul, well, that encouraged Paul. You see, at the end of the day, there's a very simple Bible principle, and a lot of you are already really f fully familiar with it, and it's this, and I put this in your notes, that obedience is greater than religion, right? You know 1 Samuel 15, 22. That story of Samuel and King Saul. And uh, here, this is the story. Samuel goes and he sees Saul after Saul was supposed to go and kill all the Amalekites. And he didn't. He left some of them. And he goes and checks on them. And Saul starts justifying himself by saying, well, I mean, I, I killed most of them. And I kept the best of the animals. And I kept some of these people. And he's like, well, no, that's actually not what we asked you to do. We asked you to kill them all. And uh, so Samuel says, while they're kind of arguing about whether he was obedient or not, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. You can offer all of your religious ceremony. You can be involved in all of your spiritual-sounding excuses. You can be connected with all kind of activity, but when the Lord specifically shows you there's something you need to do, if you don't actually do it, well, who really cares about your religion? I mean, what good does it really do? So, let me just tell you this. If, if you're a leader, if you're trying to achieve something, if you're trying to get something done for the Lord... People can act all spiritual and talk all they want to, but you're looking for the guy who's actually going to do what you ask him to do, right? And if you find a guy like that, well, that's thankworthy. That's how verse 16 starts out. Thanks be to God for people like Titus. Thanks be to God for people who, when you ask them to do something, they just do it, right? And so, very simply, the first characteristic and a key of a biblical missionary needs to be, they need to be a person who's obedient in the things that they're asked to do. But even beyond being obedient, Titus was what we find in point number two. He was willing. He was willing. Verse 17 continues on. It says that he accepted the exhortation, but it goes on and says, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. Not only did he do it because we asked him, he actually wanted to do it. He was excited about doing it. And so, listen, this is, this is even better yet. It says, of his own accord. I mean, 
You understand, his own accord means according to his own desires, if we just want to break it down that way. Of his own accord means that he was willing. Of his own accord literally means that he wanted to. Again, that same exact phrase that translated own accord appears back in the same chapter in verse number 3 where it says, for to their power I bear record and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. Willing, the exact same translation of the word own accord. That, that's the exact same word. And so while obedience is certainly greater than religion, willingness is greater than obedience. Because you've got to see that it is possible to be obedient and yet unwilling. All right, I mean, if you make me do it, I'll do it. Because you're afraid you're going to be punished. You're afraid you're going to lose something. You're, you know, younger children, teenagers, uh, people under authority who have a job to do, they don't like their job, they hate their job, but they're told to do their job and they know they're going to get fired. Okay, they're, they're obedient, they'll do it, but doggone it, they don't like it. So it's possible to be obedient and unwilling. It's not possible to be willing and disobedient. Because if you're willing, you're, you're willing. And they, if they ask you to do what you want to do, uh, you're going to do it. So it's, it's a greater level. Because think about it. If you're just singularly obedient, you're just doing some task that was somebody else's idea. But if you're willing, you're kind of deciding together. They had the idea maybe, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm all about it. I had that idea too. Let's do it. Right? And this is the way the Holy Spirit wants us to be with him. He's got a book full of things that we should be doing, right? But he wants us to want to do it too. And when we want to do what he wants us to do, is there really any argument? No, we should just be out there doing it. It's just that easy. It's no different than any parent. A parent who has a child who's willing and obedient, well, they're, they're pretty happy about that. You're pretty thrilled about your kids when they're in that category, right? I mean, you're glad if they're obedient. That's, that's good step one. But you want them to be obedient and excited about it at the same time. They want to do right. So again, we see this referenced earlier in this same chapter, chapter 8 and verse 12, where the Lord says to the, through Paul to the Corinthians, if there be first a willing mind, it's accepted according to that a man hath and not according to that he hath not. God's like, man, I, I love this. I'm... I'm loving this idea that you have a willing mind and you want to be a part of giving to the saints. It reminds me of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1. It says, the true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop. Well, that, he desires a good work. That's a, that's a great thing to have a desire for. I want a desire to have more leadership responsibility and, and to help put forward the work of the Lord and, and the people of God in serving together. So if you can find somebody who will actually do what you ask, man, that, that's great. But, man, when you find somebody who wants to, whether or not you even asked them, that's better. That's better. So those are things you should look for in a biblical missionary. They're, they're obedient, but they actually like it. They actually want to do it. It's not like, they sent me on this assignment. I mean, I'm just counting the days until I get my furlough. 
You don't want that guy. All right, so you can have a guy who wants to do something. You can have a guy who actually does stuff. That's good. But it gets even better when you get to point number three, and I'm calling point number three strategic. A biblical missionary should also be strategic, and we're going to see that in the next couple of verses. It starts off, and it says, we have sent with him the brother. So there's some other unnamed brother in this text. We have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. So this unnamed brother is known and praised throughout all these churches because his activity in the gospel. This is a faithful brother who's out evangelizing, who's out talking to people, and he's excited about it, and his fruitfulness of his gospel ministry is so evident that all these churches are aware of it. And all the churches are giving praise to God because of this brother's fruitfulness, right? He is getting the job done, right? But it's strategic because, not just because he's a, a, a fervent evangelist, but verse 19, it says, and not that only, but who was also, notice, chosen of the churches to travel with us. And with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Here's what you need to know about missionaries. And this is the next statement in your notes. God's strategic plan for missions is always through local churches. It's always through local churches. Y'all cannot get away from this point. If you've been in this church any length of time and you've heard me just beat this thing to death and you wonder why is he so, you know, narrow why, why is he so, you know, against good dudes doing good things, but maybe not through a local church? I mean, aren't we all the universal church? Have you ever heard that one? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, in a sense, we are all spiritually gathered together at the right hand of the Father. I, I get that. Um, seated in heavenly places. But that's not here. I mean, down here, we're gathered in local churches and localities and and so God works in and through distinct local churches throughout the revelation of all the Scripture. That's how he works. You can't just unilaterally and independently make up your own rules and go out of your own accord independently and do your own thing in Jesus' name and expect it to be really strategic. I'm not saying that God doesn't honor his word even if a guy's out doing something outside of the structure that God established. I'm just saying that the strategic plan for missions is always and exclusively through local churches. That's just what we see. You see, there's plenty of people, truly, there's plenty of Christian people that will obey when the Lord asks them to do something. There may be fewer, but there's still plenty of people who actually enjoy doing it. They're, they're willing, truly. But in, in the context of worldwide Christianity, there are far fewer people that leverage the biblical strategy of a local church ministry. Far fewer people. You see, they forget that the scriptures say that the church is not like the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And, and they forget that in Ephesians 5.25 that the Bible says that Jesus Christ died not for individuals. 
He died for the church. Oh, individual, we get to get in on it. Praise the Lord. But he died to create a body of believers that would work together. And missionaries are to be sent out from churches. See for reference Barnabas and Saul in Acts 13. You see, this unnamed brother, it says in verse 19, was chosen, and obviously by virtue of the mission he's on, sent by the churches. He wasn't just chosen and sent by one church, actually, but by virtue of the fact that many churches got together to help support what was going on, he was chosen and sent, not by individuals, not of their own accord, not by their family, not by the government, not by independent Christian organizations. They were sent by the churches. So a biblical missionary, you've got to get this, is never self-appointed. He's never self-directed. He's always going to be the direct product and the emissary of local churches. Multiple churches come together and agree he's chosen that this brother be sent. It says chosen to travel with us and to work under the direct supervision of Paul. It says which is administered by us. See, this is the strategic plan for ministry. And as a result, it provides more safety for the missionary. It provides more security for the work in itself. There's assurance in knowing that you're acting directly in accordance with God's revealed will and his word, and you're backed by an entire body of believers to pray and to support and to help. Therefore, any ministry that does not have its roots stemming from the sending and blessing of a local church or churches, well, they're not intentionally pursuing the establishing of local churches. Well, anybody in that category is actually not a biblical missionary or a ministry, a biblical ministry. How do you know that? Well, because the Bible says over and over and over again that we are to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. And how did the Apostle Paul do his ministry? Well, there's a lot of answers you might offer, but really the pattern of Paul's ministry is described for us in Acts chapter 14. Let me remind you, starting in verse 21. Paul coming to the end of his first missionary journey, and it kind of recaps what they had been doing. And as such gives us the pattern, Acts 14, 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, that's evangelism, and had taught many, that's discipleship, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, continuing to build them up, right? And exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So they continued this work of evangelism and continued discipleship and growth until there got to a point where they had mature enough people that they could biblically ordain as leaders and elders in every church. These aren't just backyard Bible studies. They're establishing biblical local churches and establishing biblical qualified leaders 
to be in those churches. That is the culmination of any particular work that's done in missions or anywhere in the world. They come from local churches, Paul and Barnabas coming from Antioch, and they traveled around to establish local churches and establish elders over those local churches so that then they can continue on their own and Paul and Barnabas go do, do likewise somewhere else. It's just not that hard. And if people are involved in other ministries that don't come from churches and with the target of establishing churches, well, the truth of the matter is they have no authority. And because they have no authority, I'm afraid to tell you, but they'll have no longevity. The work can't sustain beyond the individuals that are doing the work. Because it's not organic, it's man-made. And when that laborer leaves, the organic growth of the church, which is the body of believers in that new locality, well, they're not an organic body of believers because they're not a church. And the church, as we've said, is not an organization. It's an organism. It's the body of Christ. So that's the strategic direction you want. You want to support missionaries? You support church planting missionaries, ordained and sent by local churches. All right, number four in our list. Again, highly intuitive. <laughs> they should be honest. Uh, don't need no lying missionaries. How about that? Don't need no cheating around here. I mean, come on. There's a specific context. Okay, verses 20 and 21. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us. This abundance which is administered by us is the idea that the church has given abundantly and they're going to carry the money to Jerusalem. Okay. That no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So that no man should blame us is the cash equivalent of being blameless, right? Being blameless. First Timothy chapter 3, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good thing, right? A bishop then must be blameless. And it has a bunch of other characteristics that you could argue are nothing more than a detailed delineation of what it means to be blameless, the overarching category of everything a bishop or a leader in ministry should be is blameless. And when we say blameless, that obviously does not mean that nobody will ever try to blame them. Because if you're a leader in ministry, you will be blamed a lot. The question is, you should never be able to be rightly blamed. You should be above being rightly blamed. That no man, it doesn't say that no man ever blame us. It says that no man should blame us. They have no right to blame us if we're above that level of reproach, right? When the church in Jerusalem was growing and growing and the apostles couldn't keep up with all of the needs of the different widows and the people that had physical needs, they had to appoint men to see to those needs so that they would not leave the ministry of prayer and the word of God. And these first group of deacons were selected in Acts chapter 6 and the qualifications fall out in verse number 3 where that says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, blameless, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. 
You want a biblical missionary, they need to be blameless. They need to be above reproach. They need to be men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Somebody that you are about to dispatch to set over a new business that needs to be taken care of. They need to have God's wisdom, they need to have God's power, and they need to have integrity. Honest before God and honest before men. That's being accountable. That's willing to be accountable. Romans 12, 17 talks about provide things honest, not just before the Lord, but in the sight of all men, right? So specifically, this is in your notes, a missionary must have financial integrity. A missionary has to have financial integrity. So again, historically, Paul's being given money to take to Jerusalem, and these others are helping carry the funds there. They need to be honest with that money. They need to not, you know, take a portion of it and keep it for themselves. No, they need to make sure it gets where it's intended to go. And they need to be accountable, not just before God, who's watching, but before men. They need to be able to give an account. I mean, face it, anybody who refuses to willingly give an account is only for one reason. They've got something to hide. If you've got nothing to hide, what do you care if somebody wants to do? You should be thrilled for them to take account so that they can see what you already know, that you're honest, that you're honest. If you're honest, don't you want people to know you're honest? I mean, I mean, I do. And if you've got nothing to hide, well, then come take a look. Well, you know, I've wrestled with myself this week trying to know how much to say and where to stop saying things that I've observed in life and ministry, sadly. But there are far too many ministers out there stealing money. And whether they be in stateside churches or international ministries, it kind of doesn't really matter, but a lot of them will set up some false sense of accountability that's not really accountability. And what I've seen far too frequently is a situation where there's some cult-like setup where the pastor leads the church and his wife and his daughter and his son-in-law and his brother and only family members of the pastor run all the business and finances of the church. And nobody else in the church body has any right or ability to question or ask where or how the monies are being spent. Uh, you come across a ministry like that, friend, run. Do not walk to the nearest exit. I mean, I'm telling you, there's something fishy going on. If they're not willing to stand the screw, oh, yeah, God's watching. Oh, yeah, God will take care of it in the day of reckoning. We know that. But come on, man. If you can't stand the light of a legitimate human audit, for example, well, you're not honest. You're not honest. And, and that's just a sad reality of things that go on. Do you remember what Jesus said? when he talked about stewardship back in Luke chapter 16, and it, there's this parable of a steward, and then we're not going to read the parable of the steward, but the end of the parable, he lands on the lesson associated with our biblical stewardship. And it's Luke 16, starting in verse 10. It says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful, in, unrighteous, in the unrighteous mammon, that's money, who will commit to your trust the true riches? So your dealings in finances 
are nothing more than a reflection of your actual integrity and character. And if you can't be proven faithful in the things that God considers the least of these things, just money, well, then why would he trust you with things that are of eternal value like the souls of men? And he goes on and he says, if you can't be faithful in that which is another man's, who will trust you with that which is your own? In fact, there's a whole lot of people involved in ministry these days, sad to say. They're not serving the Lord. They're serving mammon in the name of the Lord. There's a difference, right? They think godliness is a means of great gain. Well, that's the wrong way to translate 1 Timothy 6. No, it goes on in verse 13 of Luke 16, and it says, You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot. They're polar opposites. Uh, If you're serving God, you can't serve mammon. If you serve mammon, you can't serve God. And obviously, God takes account, and obviously, nobody's getting away with it forever. But we should be able to be honest in the sight of men. And so a missionary needs this quality, obviously, of financial integrity, as it also works together with the next quality. Number five in your outline is that he's a worker. He's an actual worker. So verse 22 goes on and it says, And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. So I want you to realize this is yet another brother. Because it says, he's another unnamed brother, I might add. Because it says in verse 22, and we have sent with them. The them has to be with Titus and the unnamed guy. And so this is a third guy, right? And and it says that we've proved him diligent. And we've proved him diligent in many things. That means he's a hard worker. That means he's not lazy. And one way that bad missionaries can steal your money is just by not working. They're just lazy. They're supported to work like Colossians 4. The master gives unto the servants that which is just and equal. And the servant is to do the work that the master then benefits from. They're not paid just to go and enjoy life in an exotic country. They're paid to get a job done, right? But because they're dishonest, they take your money. They lie on their missionary letters that they write, knowing that none of you are ever going to show up and check on them. And as long as they write good letters, you say, my goodness, Jeff, have you been jaded? Like, seriously, bro, take a vacation. (laughs) To which I would say, okay. (laughs) (laughs) See how I did that? Did you see how I just did that? No, seriously, it's a, it's a sad reality out there that there are far too many people who take, and I always think of it this way, I, with fear and trembling, I received support as a missionary in a foreign country knowing that everything that I did was, for the most part, unsupervised. I was on my own. And either my integrity and diligence kept me going, doing the right thing for the right reason, or it didn't. And I sadly met many, many, many people that it didn't seem to motivate them. And I never really understood it because I always would think of the generous offerings 
of Christian people in the States who didn't have the opportunity and privilege to live and do what I did. And some of those people are living on a fixed income. Some of those people are legitimately and sacrificially giving where they could be investing it somewhere else. They're making an investment in the ministry God's given me. And to think that I'm going to steal that money and not invest it in eternal things that will return rewards to those people who gave it, well, that's just criminal. I'm sorry. But missionaries need to be self-starters because they are unsupervised. And in order to have a good confidence that that's going to happen, they need to have already, before they're sent, been proven diligent and proven diligent in many things. So the principle is really clear. This is in your notes. You ready? This is deep. If you're lazy, you're a loser. Go home, loser. (laughs) Look, if a man hasn't proven himself diligent in many things, he should never be approved to be a missionary. But listen, and let me just emphasize for a second many things. Because somebody might be good, somebody might be outstanding in one thing, but really never proven themselves in a myriad of other things. Well, a guy like that is, could be a great asset to a team that somebody else is leading. A guy like that could be a great help on a ministry team. But you don't want to send a guy like that out on his own because typically being a missionary means you're the jack of all trades. Typically being a missionary is you've got you to do everything by yourself, at least for a while, until you win to the Lord and train other people to do new things and By the way, how are you ever going to train them to do those things that you have never done or have never been proven at least a hard worker to do? Man, you can't beat the Word of God. It's a sad reality that sometimes missionaries leave America because they're losers, because they can't make it here. There's a bad stereotype. It really bothered me, but stereotypes exist sometimes for a reason. Some of those guys are just weirdos. I mean, I'm not going to lie. They can't preach. They're weird. I just shut up. But they know. They've been in church long enough. They know if I just surrender to missions, bam, I go from zero to hero, like just like that, because I got the title missionary over me now, and everybody knows in good churches anyway, missionaries should be heroes. So now they're special. Well, in their own eyes, anyway. And then once they get their money raised and they move six or eight time zones away and nobody's looking over their shoulder anymore to supervise them, somehow or another they realize that, wow, I've raised $50,000, a year, more than I've ever made. And for a little bit of nothing, I can hire some lady to clean my house. I can hire some guy to drive my car. I can hire somebody else to pay my bills. I can hire somebody else to go shopping for me. I can hire somebody else to run errands for me. And before you know it, I can hire some other people to even knock on doors and talk to some people for me. Well, I live my life in a walled compound as American as possible so that I don't have to go out and soil myself with those people. You think that's crazy? I wish it was crazy. 
There's people like that. They're lazy. They're losers. God's man has to be a hard worker. You know why investing in Kale Horvath is such a good idea? He's a hard worker. He's a hard worker. And you know what? He's been oftentimes proved diligent in many things. That's how you know it's a good investment. Same for the Albanians. They're, they're hard workers. Think about it this way. God created man, Adam, placed him in the garden before sin occurred. He's called the son of God. And what did God give Adam, the son of God, to do? He gave him work to do in the garden, didn't he? We now, as sons of God, Ephesians 2.10, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And God is going to hold us accountable. There is a day of reckoning, 1 Corinthians 3.13-15, speaking of the judgment seat of Christ, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So the principle is clear. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, here it is, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. I mean, listen, I'm all about helping people who need help. And I'm all about giving a guy a leg up. But man, if a guy's not willing to work, he ought to be hungry. It's a biblical principle. I'm sorry. We have to be careful with the endless, never-ending handouts. Sometimes helping hurts. Sometimes. Again, use discernment. Let the Spirit lead you. I'm just saying, the Bible says, if any would not work, neither should. Listen, there's your weight loss program. I mean, uh, never mind. The Holy Spirit goes on, more important than Jeff going on, and says, we hear that there are some which walk among you, here's the word, disorderly. What does that mean? He defines it for you. Working not at all, but are busybodies. They're all about everybody else's business, but they ain't doing any of their own work. Now, them that are such, anybody who falls in that category, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. As though we even have to say, you know anybody in that category? You know what God's word is for them? Um, get to work. <laughs> Earn your own bread and then enjoy it. Listen, there's a lot to be said for a guy that is just persistent. And there's a lot to be said for a missionary if, if he'll just work. If he's just not lazy, it's amazing what God can accomplish. So a biblical missionary is not just a worker, but he's also, this point number six, a co-worker. A co-worker, verse 23 starts off, whether any do inquire of Titus, he's my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Now we're going back to Titus again. He's a co-laborer in the gospel. He learned to work on a team. Paul always had others that he worked with, right? Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Epaphroditus and Clement and Luke and Philemon, etc. Paul always had people he worked with. And working together with 
fellow helpers, well, that develops fellowship in the gospel. That's what we see in Philippians 1.5. Titus worked with Paul. He proved himself faithful. He was trustworthy. So he was asked to travel around and check in on others, like here in Corinth. He kept doing such a good job, he ultimately was sent to the island of Crete. That's what we read in Paul's letter to Titus as it starts out in Titus 1, verse 5. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldst set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Again, do you see the theme working through? Titus, a willing and obedient servant, strategically sent by churches to establish churches by establishing qualified leadership, which is termed setting things in order. You get out of that pattern, you're out of order. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we glanced at verses 13, 14, and 15, the principle of equality pops up in verse 14. It says, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want and their abundance may also be a supply for your want that there may be equality. In other words, we're in this together. Some go, others send, right? But we're all in this together. We're we're co-laborers. We're co-workers together. So let me move on, but the, the statement in your notes is this. And as a church and as a strategy of supporting, we're not looking to simply pay for missions, but to partner in missions. I'm not interested in finding guys who just want to blow through town, get a check from us, and we never hear from them again. I'm interested in developing relationships with ministry partners all over the globe that we have some connection to and some interaction with, and I know it's limited, but they at least know that we're on their team more than just cutting a check. That's important. And that's why on occasion we have dropped some missionaries that we've supported because they've demonstrated that they're actually not interested in a relationship. They're only interested in a check. And so we try to be kind and we try and give them some extra money and some lead time so they can make it up on their own. I'm not trying to take bread off their table. I just want to partner in missions. I don't want to just pay for it. All right, let's go to the last point. The last point is glory. And man, y'all, this is the place to land the plane. This is good. Glory. It goes on in verse 23 and it says this. So we talked about Titus being the fellow helper. And it says, or our brethren be inquired of. Here's something about these brethren. They are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. They are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. So this word messengers is the exact same word that almost exclusively throughout all the New Testament is translated apostle. So this would be, a, I don't speak Greek at all to even pronounce it right, but it would be something like apostolos or something like that. Of course, the, the translation is apostle, and those of you in this church who've been with us for any time, you know that the word apostle literally means, the word missionary doesn't appear in your Bible, but the word apostle does. It means one who is sent. That's literally what it means. Well, in two places only, it's not translated as apostle, it's translated as messenger. And for me... I like the word as far as a, a, a missions context in, in, in the continuing church of Jesus Christ. 
I like the term messenger because a messenger is sent with a message, right? Sometimes we get a little confused about the apostles because we think of the big 12 apostles and, you know, Judas fell and they picked another one and those guys were special and they lived at a special time and they had special signs and miracles and they had special qualifications and, and we think of that and that's true. And there were other apostles also that didn't have those special signs and gifts and wonders and miracles. Okay. But sometimes when we say the word apostle, our mind might take us to a place, um, yeah, we don't have apostles anymore. But if we say the word messenger, like the Holy Spirit does, well, we should all be a messenger, shouldn't we? I mean, we should all be taking a message somewhere to somebody else, right? The other place that it's used is Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25, where it says, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you, somebody's being sent, Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. And again, I want you to notice that they are not just the messengers of Paul. They're the messengers of the churches. You see that? Because a biblical missionary is sent he doesn't just go, and he's sent by churches. We've kind of covered this already. And they serve as extensions of the body of Christ to carry out the Great Commission to reproduce fruit after its kind, like it says in Genesis chapter 1. So I want you to notice the picture. This is your little sentence. You've got four words to fill in, but we'll leave it on the screen for a while, okay? A biblical missionary leaves the comfort of home, endures hardness in a strange land, is often rejected by the people he came to serve, doesn't fight back, but continues to offer the message of salvation. Now I'm going to give you a second. Fill out the little blanks. And when you're done, look at me. I'm going to talk for a second. Okay, you get your little four words. They'll stay up there. Don't, turn, don't go off this screen anytime soon. Okay, give it to them. So a biblical missionary is going to do that, right? He's a guy who's traveled, he's sent out, right? He's going to do that. When he gets to the new place, life's going to be tough. And he's going to go through the tough times that he's got to go through. And oftentimes he's rejected personally by the people. Man, I came to help you folks. You don't seem to like me very much. Okay, whatever. They didn't invite you. The Lord sent you. And then, but you know, you don't fight back and you continue, although they steal your stuff and kill your dog or whatever happens. I don't know. It doesn't always happen that way, I'm just saying. <laughs> Although bad things happen, you just keep offering them the message of salvation. You just keep doing it. That, that's, that's, what, that's the picture. And as such, missionaries, biblical missionaries, are the single best human representation of the glory of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was like? It was like that. Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, because he left the comfort of his home in glory to come down here to earth. He endured hardships in a strange land only to be rejected by the people he came to serve. He was mistreated and he took it and he continued to deliver his message of salvation and forgiveness the word glory literally means the manifestation the glory of God is when the very person and presence of God is made manifest 
a biblical missionary manifests the very person and presence of God in a way that no one else can. They don't just reflect in some way. It says that they are the glory of Christ. And can I tell you something? When you find someone like that, well then, verse 24 is super easy, isn't it? Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love, defined earlier in this chapter as your financial giving and of our boasting on your behalf. When you find a legitimate, biblically qualified, strategic missionary, give to them. Give to them. Support them. Prove all the great things that we've thought and said of you is really true, Paul says to the church. So in the specific application of a foreign missionary, you can see why they're special, right? Why God looks so kindly on them and why we should also look kindly on them. But we're going to wrap this up with this. Because there's also a general application to the term messenger, right? And all of us are sent with a message to take to whomever you may find around you. And you may never be called to foreign service. But you can answer that call. You can take God's message and go and take it to somebody else who needs it, right? And so I guess the question that I want you to consider as we close this service is can you be found of God as obedient? Will you do what you're asked to do? Can you be found of God as willing? Do you actually desire it? Will you be found strategic? Connected to a local church ministry, not not just freelancing it. How about honest, accountable? Are you willing for some other human being to ask you some tough questions about accountability? How about being a hard worker and not just going to your job and going home and saying, I'm too tired. Well, work a little harder. Let's get some ministry done. But not just a hard worker, but a a co-worker working together on a team with other people and ultimately displaying the glory of Christ through your very life. You see, why is this portion of Scripture defining missionaries in in the chapter that's on giving? Well, on one hand, I think it's because biblical missionaries should be the target of much of our giving. But I think it also describes for us what it says back in verse number three, that we give first of ourselves. And that's a good description of how we ought to give first of ourselves. So whatever business the Lord has for you to do, let's do that with him now. Let's pray together.